Blog Talk Radio. Hello and welcome to the Compulsive Reader Talks. I'm Magdalena Ball and today's guest is Paul Berman, author of The Snowing and Greening of Thomas Passmore. Paul's been on the show before with Mike French to talk about The View From Here magazine. Oh, but when he was last on the show, I hadn't actually read his novel, The Snowing and Greening of Thomas Passmore. I have now, and I have to say that it is definitely the best book I've read this year. And I've read a lot of good books this year, so that's no small praise. Paul, welcome to the show again. Thanks very much, Maggie, and, and thanks very much for that, too. That's, that's lovely. Ta. Now, look, before we, we get started chatting, um, and I've said a lot of nice things about it, they're all true. Can you give our listeners a little taste from, from the book? Yeah, sure. The, um, the section I'll, I'll read from is from the, uh, the start of Chapter 3. So if you're sitting comfortably, then I'll begin. My dad was in glass, as they say, but got smashed when I was seven. He turned sand into glass, white light into a rainbow of colours, but was careless with himself. My mother won't tell me what his job at the glass factory involved, it's one of the subjects she won't allow to be broached. As a teenager, though, I'll discover several books stacked in a dark corner of the attic, which he somehow failed to find and throw away. And I'll guess from a couple of these that he worked in the accounts department, balancing figures, income and outcome, positives and negatives, black ink and red. But he could have been a draftsman or a glassblower. My dad could have been anything. There's the time he gives me a glass prism when we spend the whole evening shining a torch beam through it at different angles, creating spectrums of colour out the other side and doing experiments. And there's the time I think of as our best day ever, shortly before the day of his dying. It's a Saturday morning and we're sitting at the kitchen table. There's a loose edge of veneer at one corner of the table and it's my habit to pick at this with a thumbnail. The breakfast dishes are on the draining board a mum standing to one side of the small kitchen, slightly separate to the scene, but smiling. Come on, Tomo, he says. It's that time of year. Sling your coat and hat on. We'll walk down the village. You can help me choose our Christmas tree this year. And he unhooks my black duffel coat from where it hangs and drapes it over my head. The previous night's frost hasn't thawed and my fingers and toes, my ears and my nose ache with the sharp cold as I run to keep up with him. Stride, stride, stride but it doesn't matter. Two of my steps to one of his. There's a crowd at the greengrocery and the floor is damp and dirty. As Mr. Hall scoops Brussels sprouts and carrots or tosses King Edwards onto the scales, his breath creates foggy clouds and his bulbous red nose has a drip on the end. Dad sorts the stack of Christmas trees, Norway spruce, pickier aves, and pretends to seek my advice. We should get one with roots and a clump of soil on, Tomo, do you reckon? It'll last longer. Yes, I tell him, and make a show of examining and rejecting the trees he's passed over. There's a slish of tyres on the salted main road and the grumble of motors caught behind the town bus. It wants to have a good shape, not one of those spindly things. One that's a bit taller than you, I guess. Can you see one, Tomo? And I'd point to the one he's holding apart from the rest, which he hasn't yet appeared to properly notice. That one, I say. This one? Yes. He lifts it off the ground, turns it round, inspects it from several angles. I think you're right. Yes, he'll do brilliantly. Excellent choice. I'm glad you came. You know a good tree when you see one, that's for sure. We'll have to get you on this job every year. It may be a day of icy coldness, but the sun 
is bright. Back home, we find a bucket and place a couple of clean half bricks at the bottom to stop the tree from toppling. The soil in the vegetable garden is frozen and though Dad hacks at it until he's red in the face, he only manages to chip away a few crumbs and to bend one of the fork tines. He rolls a thin cigarette and lights it and I hold onto the fork for him. I'd hold his pouch of tobacco too if you let me and secretly sniff at its snug honeyed aroma. There's not much joy in this, he says, letting smoke drift out his mouth with his words. We'll never fill the bucket at this rate. We could boil a couple of pans of water, I expect, to thaw it out. But then he remembers a bag of sand stored next to the dustbin. Together, we carry the tree through to the lounge and place it in front of the French windows. He helps me decorate the bucket with red crepe paper and the picture of Father Christmas I'd painted at school. That'll do, he says. Now for the real fun. From upstairs, he fetches a large box of decorations and initiates me in the ritual of dressing the tree. First, he strings the lights, spiralling them between the layers of branches, working them from the tree's tip to its base. He plugs the lights in, switches them on, isn't disappointed when they don't illuminate, but fiddles with each tiny coloured globe, twisting, tightening them in his large fingers, until they all light up. Then he introduces me to the baubles and the birds, there are about 20 glass spheres to hang, some gold, some blue, some green, some pink, but mainly silver, and half a dozen birds to clip on. These are very old, he says, holding one of the glass birds and brushing a finger along the fine bristles that represent tail feathers. I'll put these on. They belong to Granny Potts, my grandma, your great-grandma. And when we've done that, he tugs out streams of gold and silver tinsel, which we layer from branch to branch. He stands back and squints his eyes. Just like snow, he says. I copy him and can see it myself. It is, I say. It's like snow on the branches. But it's not finished yet. The star, I announce. It's wrapped in tissue in a separate box, but I can tell from the shape what it is. It has a long point at the bottom and shorter ones all the way around, suggesting rays of light, and again it's made of glass and is coloured silver, gold and blue. Dad pegs it to the tip of the tree, and there's a different light to the room now, and the air is rich with the scent of spruce sap. How about that, he says. Perfect. Shall we call Mum? There's one more thing, I say. What? We won't fit anything else on. Just one thing, please. I run upstairs and fetch my prism. If you tie some cotton around it, we can hang this too. No, Tomo, I think we've got enough. We don't want to overdo it, do we? Please. Why? It's not a decoration. You'll catch the light if you tie it in the right place and make a rainbow. I don't think. Please, Dad. Well, all right. But only this. Nothing more. Let's see how we can do it. And then it's time for Mum to admire the magic. Christmas is just four days away and he's late home. Not so late that Mum's anxious or angry, but for some reason I'm standing on a dining chair waiting at the window, pressing my forehead against the cold glass. Perhaps he's told me he'll bring back sprigs of holly or mistletoe from the market or balloons. Come away from there, Mum says. Find something to do. For goodness sake, child, he'll be home when he gets home. And she mutters something about a traffic jam or a flat tyre. The village bobby arrives as she's taking mince pies out of the oven. I watch him cycle up the street, take note of our house number, and clamber off his bike before it's properly stopped. 
the way I've seen cowboys dismounting a moving horse in films. Leaning his bike into the privet hedge, the policeman blows his nose on a big white handkerchief before crossing to the front door. Mum, I shout, running to fetch her. She wipes her hands on her apron as she moves towards the bulky shadow, which fills the glass panel and spills darkness down the hallway. I stand behind her, not wanting to miss out. Mrs. Parsmore, the policeman says, in a voice that's deep, but which he softens in a way that makes it sound misplaced. Yes? It's about your husband. I wonder if I might come in. She stands a moment, unmoving. Go to your room, Thomas. I scramble upstairs and lay on the freezing lino, hoping to hear from there, but can't. All I hear is the murmur of a deep voice, which sounds like water burbling over rocks from where I am. And then a silence, followed by my mother saying, Thank you. Only that is clear. Thank you. There are no tears or screams to remember. And I'll leave it there. What a place to leave it. Tell me about that, that passage. I, I, I mean, it's a, a fairly pivotal point in Thomas Passmore's life, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's, um, it, I actually wanted to read the, the, the bit that follows on because um, it sort of matches up. There's a sort of, well, I hope there's a sort of um, symmetry to, to, to the, the build-up and then the way that everything crashes apart again because, as you say, it, it's pivotal. But um, one of the things that um, I've always liked about a lot of stories is, is the element of in, in Christmas. Um, I remember reading a couple of Paul Theroux stories a long while ago, um, A Christmas Card and London Snow. And um, I think all of us um, get pleasure of, of, of hearing um, tales of Christmas and dressing Christmas trees and snow on its way and, and just the excitement of it. it. I think it's ingrained in us from, from childhood. Um, and uh, it's also part of, of the, the whole business, I suppose, of telling stories, that most of our stories are uh, like winter tales. They are there for, for the, the short days, the long nights, um, to, to entertain, to pass the time, and, and, to, and to suggest that there is um, spring ahead, other times coming. There's, there's a greening coming, coming through, which is, of course, what the book is all about, which, and w- which is why the Christmas scene is so important to it. Yes, and I suppose that, that, that mirrors the title at that point as well. But it's so interesting that, you know, you, you're talking about Christmas now as a kind of short day, <laughs> cold, <laughs> cold, wintry sort of thing. And I suppose, you know, uh, both of us are migrants, so I suppose um, we tend to think of Christmas still in those terms as being, you know, the cold time of year. And one of the reasons it doesn't work doesn't work so well for me in Australia is because you, you know it's um, you don't have the contrast of the warmth inside and the cold outside, the dark and the light. And that's one of the but, themes that seems to run through the book and that passage in particular, the dark and the light. You know, it's the best time ever, but it's the best time ever partly because it's also suddenly the worst time ever for him. That's right. That's right. And the and the sort of the, the darkness sort of certain certainly comes down on him and, and his world dis- dissolves. And I suppose this is the point. I mean, he has um, um, the story deals with memories and, and the memories that we hold on to, that we cling to. And this is one of his earliest memories. The, the, the memory that, that precedes this, I suppose, is where he's, he's running around the garden as, oh, I don't know, 18 months, two-year-old, three-year-old, something like that. 
and his father picks him up. But it's but they're they're fragmented memories. But this is, I suppose, the one at which um, uh, he returns to because it, it is, as you say, the the one at which everything changes, um, and which, in in a sense, he he is looking back on nostalgically, but also. Um, then the, the, the series that begins, that's when he loses his mother, um, starting, I think, pretty much at that moment um, when she calls him to her side. And um, we can sense, I hope, um, her rejection and her inability to, to deal with this, this sudden loss um, being carried across to Thomas. Mm. There's a lot of parallels in that scene too, aren't there? The the inner versus the outer, the inner world of Thomas as he perceives the outer world. I mean, there's a lot of um, landscape, scenery, imagery going on, but also a lot of it is internalized in, in his sensation, his excitement. It's you know, it's the prism. It's all of that stuff is happening simultaneously. The warm dad, the cold mother, and then the cold dad and the warm mother who's not warm, and the cold dad who's not cold. So it, there's some very interesting contrast. And, and yes, and the, the wrecking of the tree, the tree, I mean, the scene hopefully sets up everything that, that, that follows through because as he, as he plants the tree out himself, it's at that point that he finds the first flint point. Um, and the tree is obviously something that he returns to later and, and which is there and it's, it's the same tree um, which um, is in the scene, whether it's the exact genetic tree or whether it's just part of his virtual trail, I won't go into that, um, but which is, which is there at the very end as well in the, on, on the, uh, the Marlborough Downs with, um, with Kate and with Caitlin. So yes, it sort of, it, it sets um, uh, that scene up and, and it, sort of it sort of prefigures the, um, the Christmas card as well, which, which Kate sends in with a picture of Father Christmas sitting on the, on the branch of the tree and, and the snow and that, that sort of picturesque Christmas. Um, but it's interesting what you were saying as well before about the, 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 two, um, the two cultures and, and the two places and that sense of misplacement um, that I think migrants very often have with something as powerful as Christmas. And, and there are certainly times in, in, in June when um, if it's particularly cold and, and wet, when I feel I really should be celebrating Christmas and, and there are times in, in December when it, it's still um, 20, 20 years later seems a little odd um, and a little strange um, but uh, at the same time I suppose that's that you know it is one thing that becomes that that that, that Thomas is trying to also um, explore and, 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 and might add to to an element of the disorientation in the book as well as he switches from warm beaches to to um, the very cold morning at Heathrow. Yes, and his, his is also a kind of um, migrant's journey, both physical and metaphorical, isn't it? Yes, yes, and, and one of my um, early readers uh, um, of, well, a, ma a manuscript that goes back a, a couple of years, um, was saying, look, you know, this to me um, is the migrant story and that's the story that you should you know really try and bring out and there were there were certain elements which I which I tried to draw out more and then which as other parts of the story took over I then knocked back again so there were, there were elements there but but there were there were certainly scenes in terms of looking at the migrants experience in Australia which which I put in at one point um, 
and liked, but then which seemed redundant later on, so so had disappeared. Yes, and I suppose there are a couple of migrations that he makes as well, though, not just um, from England to Australia and then back to England, but, you know, migrations from the past to the present. He's sort That's of a right. time traveler in many ways. That's right, and it's, it, and it's very much that, that um, issue, I suppose, of um, a person's own aboriginality, where, where they belong to, and, and not only the landscape and the land that they belong to, but also... Um, where they belong to in time, and, and that's, I think, where the, um, the importance of, of the points and the, um, so much of the, the, the primordial landscape that, that's touched upon um, as they explore um, the Marlborough Downs um, and some of those pagan images uh, really are coming through, because they're, they're, they still exist in the UK, um, and that's, they're a part of the modern landscape as well. And you, in a sense, to find out where you live in the present, you've also got to understand um, where that present has come from, I think. Um, or it makes it certainly it makes life a lot more interesting. And he's balancing, mm. Thomas is, is, is trying to balance that up and, and also then um, finds himself completely displaced from it. Yes. Now, you said in, in your View From Here interview, your interview with Mike, that um, one of the things you enjoy uh, is exploring the territory where the ordinary meets the extraordinary. Um, tell me a little bit more about that notion, because it strikes me as something underpinning the snowing and greening of Thomas Passmore. Um, yeah, that's, um, I, think it's, I think that's a job of, of um, all storytellers, in a sense, is, is to see... Uh, and to and to relate the world, I really I firmly believe that there aren't any new stories to tell. I mean, most of the stories are very simple stories that we keep on telling and, and retelling. But the way that we we retell them is, is the way that we interpret the world in which we live, or the way that we see things. And sometimes to find um, fresh nuances in events. Um, and it's the way that we look, I suppose, at whether it be. Um, a love tri a triangle, or a sense of rejection, or or a migrant story, or whatever. It's it's the way that we we find what is what is fresh, um, what is intriguing, what is interesting uh, in those stories. Um, so, as a writer, I suppose um, what I try and do is try and make sure that that when I'm exploring an idea, I'm I'm not just trotting out cliches or platitudes or telling the story in, 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 in the way that it's been told, but, but trying to find a new thread to it. Um, part of that comes for me with, I suppose, the language. Um, I, uh, just looking for the uh, call it poetry in life. Um, and the other part of it is the the slightly surreal way of looking at the world, the world, and, and certainly the snowing and greening of, of Thomas Passmore provides plenty of opportunities to to explore um, events uh, from a different angle, simply because it isn't um, a linear story, because it jumps around a few places, because you can begin to play uh, with time and with the notion of ideas and memories and and dreams and all of those can overlap and feed into one another. And so suddenly reality and, and, and what is ordinary becomes very mixed up, becomes a bit wacky. 
Um, and that's and that's for me where the fun is. And and your narrative structure, you know, has that quite quite interesting twist. Things will be going along quite in quite a straight line, and then suddenly there's this this bending of metal. <laughs> Yes, um, and it's, that took a lot of time because at the same, um, it took a, took a lot of messing around and there were some chapters which had been, um, were in one particular place and, and then I wanted to shift something and in order to shift one thing, I had to work my way all the way back again because um, the references that I'd put in might no longer um, be relevant. Um, so... <laughs> So it's look, it's good fun, and I love it. Um, but at the same time, I, I wanted there to be some sort of connecting. Although it seems, you know, structurally um, fragmented, I wanted there to be some logical sequence to it. Um, and I hope that that's that that is there. I think I believe it's there. Um, Yes, no, it, it certainly did come together. And, you know, having once read through it, and I won't ask you to give anything away, although I don't think it hurts the book because it can be read multiple times without That's losing right. anything. But I, I still won't ask you to give it away because it's kind of fun when it comes together in the end. But um, did you start with that opening or did that come later? I'll just ask you that. Um, it, you can be cagey the, about the it. Very, the, very, the very opening um, with the car yes, blossoming the into paragraph. flower. Um, that that actually was one of the last things that was put in there. Um, and originally, for a long while, the book had started with the next paragraph, which is Sleep, Let Me Sleep. Um, and a large part of that uh, was thanks to my, my editor, Kirsten Clark, um, who would write some very interesting questions to me. She was a wonderful editor to work with, and she would say, well, look, what about this and what about that? And she said, look, have you considered moving something forward to the end, which actually... Uh, sorry, so moving something forward to the start, which which much more strongly prefigures the end. Um, and at the time, I said no, <laughs> don't think I will. But then I I played around with it and I tried it and I tried it out on a couple of people and two people said yes and one person said no. And then I sort of left it there and I thought, yeah, it it works. It's okay. It doesn't kill the story. I was I was concerned that it might actually give too much, but I don't think in 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 the way that um, the words work and because of this, the, the repetition of sequences and words that happen at times, I don't think it gets in the way. And, and some people completely miss it. Um, and when they get to the end, so they're completely surprised. Um, and I think that's, you know, that's, that's fair enough. I mean, it, we, we all read texts in different ways. Uh, and sometimes we just skip over words or, or issues or we forget them as we go through. Well, I think you miss it. I, I mean, I think I missed it too. I think you, everybody who reads it will miss it, but it implants yeah. so that it becomes deja vu when you come across it again. That's right. Yeah, good. <laughs> my, my wife is reading the book for a second time at the moment, and she's, she's, she's finding, um, I put in lots of little um, uh, clues along the way, which, which first time around, I wouldn't expect anybody to actually pick up, and, and most people won't read the book a second time, I, I, I imagine, but second time round they're there so that you can begin to see, ah, oh, this, this is, you know, um, Thomas has you know, so got the you know, leg cramp here and his, his muscles is crimping there and he's, he's sort of, he's, he has got an awareness of something else which doesn't necessarily stand out at the story at that particular point but makes sense later on, I hope. <laughs> 
Yes, and I, I think it's quite true to life in, in, if you think about dreams and things like that and the way they're influenced by what's happening actually around you, the, the sounds outside yeah, yeah. or <laughs> the snoring well, that's right. or what uh, have you. That's right, and, and the times when, I mean, the number of times in the morning when um, uh, my dream suddenly, you know, had this truck sort of backing towards me because my, my alarm clock sounds like a vehicle reversing, I think, more than anything else. And so I wake, wake up in this shock, you know, thinking I'm about to be run over, and, and of course I'm, you know, it's another day. That's <laughs> <laughs> right. Another day and another story. Which brings me to my next That's question. Right. Um, Louis de Bernier, who I think I may be talking to tomorrow, um, once said in yep. an interview that the first novel takes most of your young life, probably around 20 years to write. And from then on, you have about a two-year window, <laughs> which is why subsequent <laughs> novels are always so different and such a big jump from the first one. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm assuming that uh, the snowing and greening of, of Thomas Passmore did take quite a lot of time from conception to publication, um, because most first novels do. How is it going with the second one? I'm not going to ask you. I know you're a little superstitious, but I mean, what is the writing process for you? Is it changed a lot? It it has changed a lot. I mean, you're right. Firstly, I mean, the snowing and greening. I suppose if I if someone says, how long does it take you? How long did it take you to, to get this book published? I have to say at the moment, 25 years. That's the average, um, which is stunning because when I started writing 25 years ago, I, I had this, this dream that I would, I would um, write, for, you know, write one book for three years and then the other book, that would immediately become a bestseller. The second book would, would be out in three years and, and, and so on until I would be independent and, I, and that, that would be the way that I would, I would earn my living and live my life. Um, 25 years uh, on... Um, I'm hoping that the next one I can actually get through in, in, um, and, and, and finish. Um, well, I'm, I have a deadline to try and get it finished by um, this weekend. Uh, I think it's going to be about another three weeks or so after that. But even so, that's still six or seven years because I was working on it before the snowing and gre before this version of the snowing and greening. I'm hoping that if I can speed up after that, I might actually work the average back um, and, and be able to get it back to, to um, five or six years average per manuscript, but um, and, and who knows, <laughs> maybe I'll get down to two or three again some point in the future. But it's quite different, isn't it? I mean, it's almost more, more craft later on and less, you know, saying something. Yeah, that's, and, do, and do, look, there's a are confidence you finding that? as well. Yes, and, 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 and certainly in terms of, of, of having the confidence to actually say, well, um, having gone through that process with, with an editor once, um, who is asking the right questions, I now try and hear her voice in my head and say, well, okay, what would you do? Do you really need this? Um, which, is, which are things I've always done in the past uh, to try and look for redundant material and kick it out and, and see what would advance the action, what would add pace. But I find that I can do it much more confidently now than I could before. And I think that's one of the things we all as writers need. We need that, that initial affirmation to say, look, this is working okay. Um, and until it was, until the Stone and Greening was out, I still couldn't quite, I still believed that maybe the publisher had made a big mistake and that a few weeks into the process, um, they would regret it, I would regret it, and number two would really just not get off the ground again because the whole process would have been a disaster. So, so fortunately that isn't happening and, and the confidence is growing a little bit and um, 
hopefully I will begin to be able to push my writing and the direction that I'm taking um, the writing in in um, in other in other ways and a lot more confidently. Mm. Yes, you've got a mandate now, if nothing else. <laughs> That's right. Which one never has for the first novel. Um, no. Now, you asked me a question via email, which I didn't answer. So I didn't answer it because I thought it might be a good one to throw back at you. Okay. <laughs> and that is, how do you manage to balance the time between um, the website, the view from here, your own writing, and I guess in your case, teaching as well? Um, with a great... Yeah, with difficulty. Um, this year I've been doing, uh, I was being tracked by the Australian Bureau of Statistics for about several months to see how my working hours and how my wife's working hours were spent. And I was a bit shocked to find um, that I was spending something between 52 and 55 hours a, a week um, with my salary job um, as, a, as a head of an English de department. Um, and a, and a teacher and bringing home correction, VC work and, and the like. And then trying to find some time on top of that and I, I was putting in, I suppose, 15, 17 hours a week writing and, and it just wasn't working. Um, I, I wanted to look at ways to actually extend um, the, the number of hours in the day from 24 to 26 um, to see if we could, if that could work. And, I, and the best I've been able to do is to get up at six in the morning um, and, and do about an hour's writing before I start getting ready for, for work. And it's a good hour, um, but I know that by the end of the day, if I start work again at 9 o'clock, I'm just, uh, I'm, my, my brain is mush, I'm just a vegetable. So the weekends become pretty much the way to go, and it's just a matter of, I suppose, using those, those hours as solidly as I possibly can. Uh, I'm, and, and just plodding away, um, small steps all the time. And the brain doesn't stop, uh, of course. And I, at the moment on this desk, I've got something like um, 20 post-its sort of dotted around from when I, I wake up sort of in the middle of the night, think, right, okay, there's a sentence or that's an idea or cut this or put that in. Um, so it's piecemeal. It's a bit like, I suppose, um, making a patchwork quilt in some ways. There's lots of little squares that come together and then at some point you hope that the seams aren't too obvious. Um, and then, of course, you, you, know, you can't write and work in isolation. There's not much point in being a hermit. You've also got to live. So um, there's got to be time to, to relax and, 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 and meet people and have a good time uh, and go places. Um, so it's, yes, um, I suppose it's, if, if you want to do something badly enough, you, you put in the hours, you find a way. Um, uh, it's not always easy. You sort of think about winning tax lotto so you can give up the salaried job. Um, <laughs> um, but that's, you know, I think it's one in 84 million chance of that happening. So I'm not banking on it. <laughs> yes, and I suppose it's good to be able to hedge the bets too. It takes a little pressure off. No, yeah, that's right. That's right. Um, and I mean, we're very lucky. You don't feel the pressure of commercialism. That's that's it. Um, and we're we're very lucky in Australia, in, in as much as we have long service leave, but it accrues after a while. So in addition to normal holidays, and I've, at the moment I've got a uh, a batch of long service leave coming, so I've, I've got basically five months where I can write, um, and I shall be yeah just using that time to 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 plug away. And um, I know that uh, if I was uh, still living in the UK, I wouldn't have that time. It would be you know, just sort of eking out during holidays. So, so that's tremendous, and that's that's something to certainly to use.
Wonderful. Okay, well, I think that's all we have time for today. I'm not even sure if we're still streaming. Um, but, Paul, thanks very much for joining us. Our next guest will Thank be you very Louis de Bernier. Um, he'll be joining us to talk about his latest novel, A Partisan's Daughter, and I'm hoping to get him to play a little mandolin for us, too, but no promises. So, see you then. Thanks, Paul. Thanks very much, Maggie. Goodbye. Bye-bye. See you. Bye-bye.